0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your host, Annie Sapukaya. Today, we are talking to Mary Johnson, author of An Unquenchable Thirst Following Mother Teresa in Search of Love, Service, and an Authentic Life. Mary was only 19 when she joined the Missionaries of Charity, the religious order that Mother Teresa founded and for which she became famous all over the world. This book tells the story of Mary trying to live the life that Mother Teresa envisioned for her sisters, along with the sometimes insurmountable challenges. Mary also gives us a glimpse of what Mother Teresa was like as a human being, beyond the idolized perception of her as a living saint. Today, Mary is no longer a nun and no longer a believer in the supernatural. She is a teacher, writer, and public speaker, and... In the year 2000, along with Darlene Chandler-Bassett, launched a room of her own foundation, which helps women writers and artists. We are delighted to have her on the show today. Good afternoon,
1: Mary. Yeah, good afternoon, Vinnie.
0: We're talking to you today about your book, An Unquenchable Thirst, following Mother Teresa in search of love, service, and an authentic life. Um, You were a nun with the Missionaries of Charity, the religious community Mother Teresa started, for 20 years until the late
1: 1990s, right? That's right. I left in 1997.
0: Right. Um, Why write
1: this book now? What led you to, to want to write this now? Well, the now question is kind of interesting, I guess, because actually I started writing relatively soon after I left the Sisters, but it took me 10 years to write the book. It just um, took a lot of um, work and a lot of perspective, I think. You know, I had to to write everything down, and then I kind of had to figure out what it meant. (laughs) So it was just a very long process. Um, I think, you know, part of the now thing perhaps also has to do with the fact that as I was beginning to write, the pedophilia crisis broke in the Catholic Church in the United States, that people began to realize what had been happening. And I kind of noticed that no one was really talking from their own experience of what it was like to try to live a consecrated religious life in the church. What was it like to try to live a vow of celibacy or a vow of chastity? And I felt like nothing would really change until people started talking from their own experience of what that really felt like. So that was one thing that kind of pushed me to do it when I did it, maybe.
0: Right, right. Um, so you you joined the Order when you were 19. Um, so that's an interesting story as well. Why did you feel compelled to um, become a nun?
1: Well, I, I was a senior in high school trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, I really wasn't headed anybody thought including me in the direction of becoming a nun I was editor of the school newspaper I was on the debate team I was a typical kind of high school nerd type Um, and I think I was probably headed off to some sort of career in communications but one day I saw the cover of Time magazine and there was this nun's face and I don't know the thing just drew me in and I went and I read that in the school library, I skipped my French class and just cover to cover about this woman in Calcutta who was taking care of the poor, you know, taking the dying off the street, caring for orphaned babies. Um, and I felt something move inside me, like God was asking me to do this, too. And uh yeah, I spent one year at the University of Texas while I was waiting for the sisters to get back in touch with me. I sent all these letters off, Mother Teresa, Calcutta, India. I couldn't find the right address. Um, <laughs> and eventually, the sisters got in touch with me, and I uh, decided to join.
0: Right, and you joined in the States, right? They had a, a chapter in, in the U.S.?
1: At that time, the, the first house of the Missionaries of Charity in the United States was in the South Bronx, and that was the only house they had when I joined in 77. And I went there. It was the year of the Son of Sam when there were all these murders that were happening. It was the year of the big blackout um, when there was so much looting there in the South Bronx. It was a very tough time to be in the South Bronx. And for that reason, also, I think for me, very exciting also. Um, But, yeah, I I joined in 1977.
0: 1977. How did your parents react?
1: They were thrilled, Um, (laughs) very religious people, and so they had nothing, you know, theoretically against me becoming a sister, but my mother especially felt like I was too young to be making such a decision, and I think, you know, in retrospect, she was probably right, but I was the kind of teenager who knew what she was going to do. I had that kind of certainty that I think only teenagers have, where you really can't tell them anything.
0: (laughs) they are going to do what they want, yeah. Um, So when you first joined the community, what were your biggest surprises?
1: Oh, big surprises, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, some of the rules were a lot more restrictive than I had expected. You know, of course I knew that, you know, sisters have a vow of chastity, that they give up marriage. I didn't realize that for the missionaries of charity, they would carry that to all sorts of extremes where we wouldn't really be allowed to have friends. We could write our parents only once a month and any other contact outside the community was completely cut off immediately. Um, we could visit our family once every ten years for two weeks. Those things were surprises to me. Um, that we wouldn't be allowed you know, to speak one-on-one with a sister, just like to get to know each other as friends, that was completely discouraged. Um, that was a surprise. Then there were, there were other things like um, we took baths with water just from from a bucket. We get one bucket of water and we pour it over our heads with these little tins. And um, nobody had told me that. And I got in trouble in the beginning because I was taking showers and didn't realize I wasn't supposed to. Um, but it's because the Missionaries of Charity really took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience and service to the poor very seriously. And so I think, you know, they're kind of like the – Kind of like the Marine Corps of the Catholic Church, you know, very hardcore. Maybe even like Navy SEALs, you know, carrying everything to the extreme.
0: Right. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like uh, something that I found interesting is that there was, of course, the shock that you had joined a religious community where before you weren't in one, but uh, also kind of a cultural shock because of the fact that Mother Teresa had lived in India for so long.
1: Yeah. The 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 congregation started in India in 1948, and um, so they'd been in India for about 30 years and had a few foundations at that time outside of India, but the culture was very, very, very much Indian. And, you know, that was interesting in many respects. I really enjoyed, you know, living with people from a different culture, seeing what that was like. Um, Eventually, you know, I spent my first six months in the Bronx, but then I went to Rome, and then I lived with sisters from all over the world, and that was just very exciting for me. But it's always a challenge to live with people from another culture, Um, and especially when you're not allowed to question anything which was one of the things that that Mother Teresa had about obedience. You know, this is the way it is, and no questions asked. And when you're encountering a lot of different things, you can't quite sort out, you know, what's cultural, what's really religious in this. It it was a bit confusing sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah. But was it something that you um, kind of just accepted at the time, or is it something that grew more and more difficult to accept that kind of blind obedience
1: as you got older? Oh, the blind obedience factor was tough in the beginning because I was that headstrong teenager and teenagers kind of don't like to be told anything anyway. Um, But because there was this emphasis on it and I had this desire really to To be a good sister, and I, this was something very much driving me, and I wanted to do what I was supposed to be doing, and I felt like God was asking me to do it, and God can ask all sorts of unreasonable things. It doesn't have to make sense, because God is God, and so, you know, I tried to swallow the, the obedience thing as much as I could, but, but it did get, you know, harder and harder in many different ways, because you feel, I felt like, I couldn't make the sort of creative contributions to the community I wanted to because they just wanted you to obey orders and do things as the kind of they had always been done. And so it got frustrating for me when I had new ideas about ways to serve the poor or ways to help the sisters and um, really couldn't put any of those into action, or not many of them anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, Could you tell us about um, a writing assignment that you had when you were an aspirant and they asked you why you wanted to be a missionary of charity and and what that kind of revealed about the Order's emphasis on being a sinner?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we were given this little essay to write, Why Do You Want to Become a Missionary of Charity? And I wrote something about wanting to give my life to God and that this was a life of love and that that had drawn me. And um, I was kind of proud of my little essay. But then when the whole group gathered and our aspirant mistress, who was in charge of us and teaching us, um, said that, you know, one of the sisters had written really well. And, of course, that wasn't me. It was the sister who had written about how she was such a sinner and she was going to spend her life making reparation and doing penance. And that was the sort of attitude that was praised, that we were here really, um, you know, the the motto of the aspirancy, that first phase of becoming a sister, was he must increase and I must decrease. This were the words of John the Baptist in the Gospels. But the whole idea that, that we were... Nothing, basically, that God would be everything. Mother Teresa used to express it as she used to call herself a pencil in God's hand. And she said, all I have to be is that little pencil and God can write with me whatever he wants. Or she'd call herself a wire and that her job was to be empty and just to be a a conduit for the current that was God. And so it was always like, you know, if we did anything wrong, it was us. And that was the sinfulness that was doing. And if we happen to do anything good, that was God acting in us. You know, that's right. kind of the attitude always. Right,
0: yeah. I remember seeing an interview with a with a sister once who was also in quite a, a conservative religious community, and she said the worst thing about being married to God is that if there's something wrong with your, ma- with your marriage, it's always your fault. Always. Um, <laughs> always.
1: That's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that this kind of Mother Teresa's ideas on that, did that come from her or is it part of the Catholic doctrine? Because, of course, many orders are more relaxed than the missionaries of charity were, but um, there is a kind of thread on, about sin in the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the Catholic Church is broad enough that it encompasses all sorts of different theologies. But Mother Teresa very definitely had a very strong emphasis on sin, penance, making reparation. Parts of our lives were um, a, a daily part of our life. Involved corporal penance, which many sisters communities have completely given up. But, you know, we had these little rope whips with which we used to beat ourselves every day. They're called the discipline. We had spiked chains that we wore around our arms and around our waist during times of prayer. This was a way that Mother Teresa taught us to unite ourselves to Jesus on the cross. And the idea was that Jesus' suffering was what redeemed the world and that if we suffered, And united that suffering with Jesus' suffering, we would be saving the world as well. We could become, you know, closer to God. And uh, that was a big part of her particular theology and something I think she inherited, you know. She was born in in 1910. She came from that sort of pre-Vatican II religious experience. And it was something very strong for her. And I think it was also very much connected with her own experience of feeling God far away. That's something that she wrote about to her spiritual directors that became public about 10 years after her death um, when her letters to her spiritual directors were published, these feelings that she had of being far away from God. And what a priest told her was that the sign that she shouldn't be distressed, that she felt far away from God, that she felt all these spiritual sufferings, that she doubted God's existence. The priest told her, that it was a sign she had come so close to God because she was sharing in Jesus' suffering on the cross. She had come so close to Jesus that that his suffering had become hers. And the way Mother Teresa used to express it sometimes was so she used to say suffering is the kiss of Jesus. She would say that even to people who were, you know, sick, who were dying. There was one woman who had cancer, and Mother Teresa used to like to repeat this story. She Mother told this woman Jesus is kissing you. This suffering that you have, this cancer, it's Jesus' love for you, he's kissing you. And the woman told Mother, Mother Teresa, please tell Jesus to stop kissing me. <laughs> and mother would laugh, but I'm not sure she ever understood exactly what was going on in that conversation.
0: Right. Yeah, it's like she had her own her own logic of things. Um so you weren't surprised with the publication of her Um, of her diary where she said she was tormented, because I think it surprised quite a lot of people. Um, And it's interesting that you said that her, uh, she ended up looking at it as, well, it's evidence that she was so religious and so close to God that suffering was a good thing. That's the way that she kind of ended up interpreting it, right? Yeah, and
1: that wasn't a conclusion that Mother Teresa reached by herself. Um, Her letters to her spiritual directors indicate that for a period of about seven years, she was completely baffled by why she felt this way, that she had felt God so close at one point, and then he seemed to disappear, and she had all these doubts, and she talks about that her soul is in torture and torment and agony. Those are the kinds of words that she uses, and it was a priest who came and told her that this was the sign that she'd come close to God, and afterwards, you know, that's the kind of spirituality that followed through. And I wasn't completely surprised when these letters were published because I'd spent a lot of time studying Mother Teresa's writings. Um, Before she died, I was the sister in the community who had spent the most time studying her writings, studying her works. Um, I'd been given jobs to rewrite some of the documents that she'd originally written. Um, And I saw hints of things, you know. And I was wondering, you know, Mother, something's going on inside that she's not telling us. She certainly didn't present that face to the world. She was always the face of certainty and of love and of um, you know, just never giving any sense of having doubts of any sort. Um, but when I mentioned that I thought I was reading something of doubt, something of feeling far from God in prayer. Um, I mentioned that to a priest who was very close to Mother Teresa, and of course, he couldn't answer me directly. But he said, uh, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't continue to think that way. So I kind of knew that I was, you know, probably on to something. So I wasn't completely surprised, but um, it was a surprise to a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Do you wish that she had been more honest
1: in her feelings? Well, I think, you know, she was honest with herself in her feelings, but she didn't share that sort of thing. She felt like she had this job to do, and that required her to have this very public face. Um, you know, she was a very, very, very public person, um, and she felt like she was, you know, Pope John Paul II called her my best ambassador. She felt like she had to be the face of the Catholic Church. She couldn't really be herself. And that she couldn't even really be herself with her own sisters to talk about these things. Um, I think it was a source of real suffering for her. And I think, you know, yes, it, it would have been nice for us to know what was going on inside of her. But I think that that sort of she was a very private person in her own way. She became this enormous public figure recognized throughout the world. But she, she kind of needed to hold on to a certain core of, of, of privacy, I think. Um, at least I, I'm fairly certain that's part of the way she saw it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting what this priest said to her, because in a way, it's like her feelings of closeness to God were evidence that God existed. And then her feelings of not feeling God was also evident that God existed.
1: Isn't it wonderful how we can put a spin on anything to make it mean anything? I mean, really, um, it's just kind of astonishing. And we human beings, we do that all the time. We have our positions, and we want those positions to be right. Whatever evidence may be there, you know, we just rewrite a new story so that it makes sense to us. And I think that's that's what this priest was doing. He was trying to find a way to keep Mother Teresa very firm in her faith and just kind of rewrite the story.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that she was so focused on Jesus um, because you mentioned that you always had quite a hard time praying to Jesus. Um, I imagine that would be a
1: problem for a nun. <laughs> it was a big problem, especially with the missionaries of charity um, because Mother Teresa heard Jesus was everything. And for me, I... I really enjoyed, you know, quiet prayer, meditation kind of things, just this sense of, you know, peace and of being at one with God, a sense of being very honest to myself, of not hiding things. For me, that was the sort of prayer that that was meaningful and was relatively natural for me. But we were, you know, instructed to pray to Jesus, to pray to Mary, and this was always really, really hard for me. Um, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, Could you tell us about the story of Sister Marcel, and uh, is it Marcel, Marcel, I'm not sure, where, um, yeah, where she had to remain longer in the novitiate, and when you kind of realized what the ban on particular friendships really meant?
1: Yes, we'd always been told we couldn't have any particular friendships. We couldn't get close to any one sister in particular. We had to treat everybody exactly the same. and. When it came time to take, um, to take our first vows, we had to write letters asking permission. And then we would either be given permission to take those vows or we would be given extra time to prepare or we'd be told, no, you better go home. And one of the sisters in our group um, who was preparing with us, Sister Marcel, when she wrote a letter asking for vows, she was told, no, she wasn't ready. And she had to have six more months of preparation. And I couldn't understand this because to me, she... She was a very generous sister. She was very hardworking. She never had a bad word for anybody. I just couldn't figure this out. Um, and eventually, one of the sisters told me that Sister Marcel had been caught kissing another sister and that she was, had this tendency to particular friendships. And, you know, I had completely missed the subtext in the whole particular friendship thing. I grew up you know, in the 70s in Southeast Texas, nobody talked about gay people, lesbian people. It was all this, you know. And then finally, I, I, I figured it out that that's really what people were afraid of, that the sisters would develop these sort of lesbian relationships. Um, and, you know, and eventually um, I did develop such a relationship with another sister, which was which was interesting. But that was several years after the story you're telling now,
0: several years later. Yeah. Um, you also tell another story about, I think, when you were um, the mistress of novices, when um, there was a sister who suffered from depression. And the rules of the Missionaries of Charity made it very, very hard to
1: to treat her or to help her in any way. Yeah, this is a very sad, sad story. Um, this sister, she was preparing for her final vow, so she'd already been in for nine years. Um, but she became very, very depressed, and she was dealing with things that had happened in her childhood. And she became depressed to such a point that she sort of age regressed until she was kind of operating on the level of a six, seven-year-old child. Um, and I tried my best to get help for her, and I did actually get permission to take her to a psychiatrist, which was very unusual. Um, but that was that was helping her. But it it. You know, nobody wanted to talk about mental illness. You couldn't address it. I didn't have the permission of this sister or of my superior to try to help other sisters understand. They, The whole thing was very, very, very difficult. And eventually Mother Teresa decided that she would have to go home. Um, and this sister very much wanted to stay. And it was a very sad thing because, uh, you know, I think that we could have helped her. It In fact, this sister got in touch with me recently. She's now a sister in another community, um, and she left Missionaries of Charity, found another group to enter. And she's still very sad about the fact that she had to leave.
0: Yeah. Um, Are you ever sad that you had to leave,
1: or are you glad you
0: did? Well,
1: right now, yes, I'm, I'm glad that I did. But that... There are moments of, of sadness. It's, you know, you give your life for 20 years to something and you really, you know, you want to do it and you hope that good things will come out of it. You're hoping that you'll be able to create this loving community, that you'll be able to serve people, that you'll be actually doing some real good in the world and then find yourself continually frustrated in that it's it's just really very hard Um and so there there are sort of mixed feelings. I miss a lot of the sisters. I mean there were some great ones in there. Um, there there was a certain, you know, simplicity of life that that's really um you know, something something that I do miss sometimes, you know. But overall <laughs> glad that I'm out. I mean, because because now I can be myself. I don't have to worry about all of these rules and regulations. I can think my own thoughts. i If I have something I you know want to do, I can work hard to make it happen. I don't have to, you know be immediately stopped because this isn't the way we do things. Um, you know, in when you're part of the Catholic Church, one of the big things that happens, especially if you're a priest or you're a sister you have an immediate legitimacy. Um, with the people who are around you, in the sense that um, you know, you don't have to prove yourself. Kind of the, the clothes that you're wearing prove yourself to these people already. Um, and you have people who come, and just because you're a priest or because you're a sister, they pour their hearts out to you immediately. You know, um, whether you're worthy of that trust or not. Um, you know, outside that sort of intimacy is is harder to come by. Um, sure. So- there there are different you know advantages or disadvantages to both places but i think you know i left because i knew that i had to be myself that i couldn't stay and you know continually be feel like you know what i'm doing here is just doing what other people tell me to do and it could be a robot here and it would be the same they just need somebody to get their work done they have their agendas i think that the group was becoming more and more close-minded, while I was becoming more open-minded, and it just didn't work.
0: When do you think that that began to happen? Because 20 years is quite a long time. Did you feel that process begin right away, or was it something after you became, maybe had a bit more authority um, within the community?
1: Or Yeah, I, you know... There were troubles from the beginning, um, difficulties of various sorts, but because I really wanted it, I just didn't pay a lot of attention to to the hardest things. I just kind of kept pressing on and hoping things would get better. Um, but you know, there were there were a few kind of last strawish things at the end. Like I wanted so much to to help these women who were staying with us. They were refugee women who would come to our shelter and they came with their children. And they would mostly from Eastern Europe or from Africa because I was in Rome at the time. And we had the rule where we could keep them for three months and sometimes we could have an extension on that and during that time they were supposed to be finding other places and so many times they actually couldn't find other places and they really hadn't found work and it was very, very hard. Um, to have to turn these women away and know that they would be back out on the streets again with their children. And I found um, this entrepreneur who had this great idea of, of starting a cooperative with these women where they would um, be sewing and knitting and he was a businessman and he knew how to make things happen and I just couldn't get permission to do this. They this just said, no, this is, this is not what we do. Um, that was very hard. Um the fact that the sisters who were in charge in Calcutta more and more as Mother Teresa got older and couldn't manage things on hand the way that she had before, hands-on sort of things. She just really couldn't do that. She got older and feeble. And the sisters who took over were very much um, wanting to enforce Catholic orthodoxy. That was their big deal. And they did things like had a professor at the... Theological Institute where I'd studied, they had him discredited um, really for no fault of his own and um, had made it so that he couldn't teach moral theology there anymore, basically just so that these two sisters could have more power in the group. And uh, these sorts of things were like I said, very last strawish for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, You mentioned that Mother Teresa always said love to be real has to hurt how do you feel about that maxim today
1: well you know hurts going to come in our lives in one way or another but we shouldn't be going around looking for it <laughs> i think that was the problem with the missionaries of charity and mother Teresa's philosophy is that you know if it hurts then it's the loving thing to do and i don't think that that's true you know right. um yeah. when you when you live a real commitment There will come times when things are difficult, when things might be painful in one way or another. You find your way to work through that. But you certainly don't go looking for the pain, rejoicing when you find the pain, the way that we were encouraged to do. Right.
0: How do you feel about uh, Helmley Gonzalez, who was a volunteer with the Missionaries of Charity and was uh, in Calcutta and was kind of appalled by the conditions of their homes, and he actually charges um, that... The missionaries of charity are kind of guilty of fraud for not um, for not declaring all their donations and that a lot of the money that could be used to help the poor is, is not used and lies in the Vatican Bank. Um, how do you feel about that did,
1: I've had did some you have conversations with him actually he's a really interesting fellow um, and He's doing something great in Calcutta. He started something that he calls the Responsible Charity, where he takes um, donations to help the poor and is very concrete in the things that he does and is very transparent. Everything that um, the group spends is up on his website. Uh, He's just um, a very dedicated fellow. We've had some disagreements. Um, The name of his website is Stop the Missionaries of Charity, because he feels like what they're doing is completely harmful. And for me, you know, I say, Hamley, um, maybe can we talk about, you know, reforming the missionaries of charity, you know, revising a few things. I don't know if we have to stop them completely. They actually do do a lot of good in the world. Um, and I think, you know, yes, the sisters need to improve, you know, their practices. They, they need to be better educated to take care of the poor. There are things that they do that are unhygienic when they take care of sick people, when they take care of the dying. That's true. All that needs to change. They're not they've never um, seen their work as you know, we need to do everything state-of-the-art. Their their approach is entirely different, and this is very much related to the money question, because the idea of the Missionaries of Charity is we will share the life of the poor, and the homes that we run will be places where the poor will feel welcome and at home, where they won't feel intimidated. You know, you think of the poor people in Calcutta, you know, living on the street most of their lives, all of their lives, um, you know, going to some sort of very... Large antiseptic place, um, you know. Mother Teresa said, "No. What, what we need to do is take the, the people who are in worse condition. We'll take, we'll bring them in. We'll do what we can. We'll help them die with dignity." It's an entirely different sort of vision, um, you know. So I do think, and I had several conversations with Mother Teresa while she was alive. Um, you know, I think that the missionaries of charity could do much better. You know. People do give a lot of money. They're expecting that that money is put to use. The sisters aren't using it. A lot of it is stored away here and there. Um, I don't have access to exact figures, but it's a very significant sums. Um, and it's, you know, it's just an entirely different attitude. The idea that the sisters have that, that we are going to serve the poor by becoming one with them. Money is not that you know we're gonna think about a lot and we you know, it it's a very um it's a different logic her very different her vision, yeah. different logic.
0: Her vision was not to um alleviate poverty or to uh fix poverty, right? Which is I think what most people have in mind when they make donations. <laughs> it, <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: And that that was not Mother Teresa's thing. You know, Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. So Mother Teresa kind of took that, you know, as a given. Um, and, of course, you know, as far that the poor have always been with us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to help everybody get a better life. Um, right. And this is...
0: Well, and it's interesting because what you're talking about, it sounds a lot like um, the vision was that the poor were almost like a different category. You know, like, well, the poor... You know, as as
1: opposed to... Yeah, what happens is that Mother Teresa took very seriously those words of Jesus in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me to eat, I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. And so for Mother Teresa, the poor person is actually Jesus in front of her. And this was also something that bothered me a lot, because, you know... You have this person in front of you, you're relating to that person because that person is Jesus. And one day Jesus will reward you for whatever you do to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the least of your brothers. And that person, that human being in front of you, becomes a means to your end. The end of you getting a better place in heaven kind of thing. And that person in front of you can disappear, and I saw that happen sometimes. And in one sense, it's very understandable, because if you're feeding 5,000 people a day, it's very hard to get to know each one individually. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Um, and so if you see Jesus is in front of you, that's one way of helping you to, to keep you know, loving with these people, to have an attitude of respect for them, an attitude of, of reverence even. But it means that you miss that person who's right there in front of you. Right.
0: Yeah, well, and you said that she said several times that um, that the sisters should hurry up and die so they could go to heaven.
1: <laughs> that was really kind of absurd. Yes, I heard her say that once. Uh, Mother Teresa had been in Rome for a synod of bishops. She'd been invited by the Pope. She was one of the few women present. And, of course, that was Pope John Paul II at the time, and he was beatifying and canonizing so many people. And Mother Teresa, one day we were all having tea, and she looked at us and she said, well, sisters, I think we should all hurry up and die, because this Holy Father is canonizing everybody. <laughs> and it's kind of like, Mother, no, 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 no. <laughs> but it kind of gives you a, a, a sort of window into her mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. so much for pro-life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> what about your thoughts on Christopher Hitchens, who um, I think, as we all know, was not a fan of Mother Teresa. It was actually quite... Um, Against?
1: Yeah, Christopher what? Hitchens was one of the first people to publicly criticize Mother Teresa. He published a small book called Mother Teresa, the Missionary Position, um, and it was quite a diatribe. And Hitchens actually had most of his facts correct in that book. Most of the accusations he makes are factually correct, but I think he didn't really understand Mother Teresa's motivations. I mean, Hitchens. Wouldn't have understood all of these theological subtleties. Um, he called Mother Teresa a fraud, saying that you know she's you know so well known and she's just famous for the sake of being famous. And she's you know this was not true. Um, you know Mother Teresa took fame as part of what came with the fact that she served the poor and these things happened. But she definitely did not go looking for publicity. Um, and Hitchens felt like she was a fraud and a hypocrite and that she accepted all this money but really didn't use it and all these other sorts of things. But what I really admire, one of the many things actually that I admire about Christopher Hitchens is that when Hitchens read those letters that we talked about earlier that Mother Teresa wrote to her spiritual directors, um, Hitchens changed his mind. And he wrote publicly, he said, you know, I have called Mother Teresa a fraud and a hypocrite. She's not. She's not. She really did, you know, believe all these things. She was not, you know, out seeking for the fame. It's very clear now that when I read these letters, where she's writing about her inner life, that what actually happened is that she was basically duped by the Catholic Church in many ways. Um, but she she was genuine, you know. At the at the end, after he read, you know, those letters, he came to that sort of conclusion, which I think was a much more accurate conclusion. And I really admire him for publicly changing his mind about her when he's presented with evidence, and this is one thing that I really admire about, you know, secular people, about atheists, about agnostics, when presented with evidence, they will change their mind. (laughs) You know, it's like we talked about before, religious people, what they do is they'll rewrite another story, you know, they'll make the facts fit their story in some way. you know, changing, their mind, changing their position is not something that they're going to do easily
0: you mentioned at the very end of your book that you uh, no longer believe in a supernatural explanation for life um, did that happen as soon as you left the convent? Was it a gradual thing that you lost um, your belief in, in God or in the church and how do people react your non-belief today.
1: Yeah, it was a gradual thing. It didn't happen all at once. When I left, I kind of believed that God was calling me out. Um, And I worked for the church for a while after I left. But, you know, the more distance I got, the more nothing made sense to me. And I could see these stories behind the stories and how convoluted things were. And it just didn't feel honest anymore. Um, And it probably took about, um, you know, four or five years, and reading things like Sam Harris's The End of Faith, and doing things like that, um, talking with people that I, f- I finally, you know, did realize, okay, so I have to put all this behind me, <laughs> this is it's just really not corresponding with reality, I think for me it was that, you know, I, I didn't want it to make another story to make the facts fit the story somehow, um, you know, I just wanted to live in the world without a big filter, without, you know, having to see God everywhere, having to interpret things as God's will and having to, you know, make sense of things that were, didn't make sense. It's just so much more honest to me just to, to live life and admit that we don't know the things that we don't know. Um, and I found that much more freeing. You know, it's very threatening to a lot of people. You know, there are people who really very, very much feel threatened just by the simple fact that I no longer believe. And I think that part of that is, I mean, it has to be that my doubts, my questions, my convictions now are threatening something in them that's a little shaky, I think. Otherwise, they wouldn't have that kind of reaction where they feel threatened and they come out and lash out and say all sorts of horrendous things. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I just kind of try to be patient with these people, try to let them, um, you know, lead them perhaps gradually to see where the holes in their logic might be.
0: Um, Mary, thank you so much for being with us today and talking to us about your great book. Um, if people want to read it, where should they go? Is it it's on Amazon, right?
1: It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's kind of everywhere. Um, called An Unquenchable Thirst. You can also go to my website, which is maryjohnson.co no M at the end, just .co and I have a conversation there, an ongoing conversation about all sorts of different topics. I try to keep it a very interactive website um, but I'm yeah, really happy if people want to read my story.
0: I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anne. You have been listening to an interview with Mary Johnson, author of An Unquenchable Thirst, Following Mother Teresa in Search of Love, Service, and an Authentic Life. This is Annie Sepukaya. Thanks for listening. Come back next time.